Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor Mark Faulkner, joined by our Red Wings beat reporter, Ted Colfin. Coming up, we'll hear from Abby Rock, the Sioux St. Marie native, who has been called the next women's hockey superstar. But first, let's listen to Red Wings General Manager Steve Eiserman. Here he is yesterday, trade deadline Monday, answering your questions, Ted, about how the Wings did overall in the last few days, trading Nick Letty, Luke Witkowski, Vladislav Nemesnikov, and Troy Stetcher, and getting back two players, Oscar Sunquist and Jake Wallman, and three draft picks. Hey, Steve, how would you describe the market overall? Was it, I don't know, was it flooded out there or just wasn't much traction anywhere or what do you think uh specific to what ted the red wings or in general a little bit of both well with the red wings again um you know the players that you know the free agents that we had that that uh garnered interest were the ones we expected unfortunately a couple of our, our uh ufas um were also injured uh in, and have been out for a while so teams you know trying to make the playoffs usually aren't looking at that so uh, I think we weren't really caught off guard by anything that we were approached upon or the players that we were approached upon with our organization. So it kind of went for the most part as expected, you know, uh, you know ex- exactly what all the three deals we made were. We figured they were going to be somewhere in there. You're always hoping to, you know, you might get a little more here or there, but pretty much what we expected uh, to return for the, the players that we got, that we moved. Is there anything the marketing, oh, I'm sorry. Me? Go ahead. I'm sorry. All right. I didn't have anything important to say. Go ahead. Were you close on anything else? No. No. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Yep. You're welcome. Ted, you kind of predicted this, that the Wings didn't really have a lot to offer with these unrestricted free agents. Was that about what you expected? And what grade would you give Steve Eiserman for this trade deadline? I don't think anybody was surprised where they mark. I mean, I don't, it was basically mm-hmm. status quo. There were several players there that had some interest, such, such as Nick Letty and Nemetsikonov. Like you said, Stetcher may have been a mild surprise, but I think he can help a team like Los Angeles. No, I, don't, it, there, I don't think there were a ton of fireworks, even, even around the league, Mark. Mm-hmm. I didn't really sense there was a ton of fireworks. Now, it was pretty much, pretty much in the – an average trade deadline day grade, probably average a B or a C. I sure. mean, mm-hmm. we got some draft picks, you know, not, nothing in the first round or anything, but some draft picks, a couple of, pro- well, Sunquist is more than a prospect. He's been an established NHLer. Has had some injury problems the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I mean, the organization probably got a little bit better yesterday, not a ton better by any stretch, but. We'll go forward and see what happens. Let's take a closer look at the two players Steve Eiserman added. You just mentioned Sunquist. He's 6'3". Two big players. Wallman is 6'2". Here's what Eiserman had to say. I'll start with Jake Wallman, I guess. A left shot defenseman. Um, you know, was uh, playing behind some pretty good players in St. Louis. We kind of watched him for a while going back to uh, um, his days at Providence uh, uh, and kind of followed him through the minors and had some uh, discussions with Doug earlier in the season when he was looking at doing some other things. Uh, so anyway, what we get is, you know, uh, 
he's got an opportunity. He'll get some opportunity to play here. We think he has a chance to be a regular in the NHL and just hasn't been able to do that behind a pretty good in with a pretty good defense core in front of him in St. Louis. But skates well, shoots the puck hard, pretty competitive uh, left shot defenseman. And as you know, we don't have. Uh, um, I think our only left shot D-man signed right now is uh, is Jordan Osterley for next season. So um, we, you know, with the acquisition of Oli uh, Ulevi and uh, with Jake, a couple of guys that you know we get to try out and see how they do and decide if they where they fit for us for next year. In Oscar, uh, you get a big big right shot forward, another right shot. Unfortunately, uh, you know, with Lucas Raymond in the lineup, Sam Gagne in the lineup, and Mitch Stevens and. Uh, Carter Rowney, both um, injured our right shots and uh, really the only one signed for next year at this point uh, was Lucas. Um, it was an opportunity to bring in a guy, one, a, a bigger body that that plays on the right side, that is a good penalty killer, uh, that we felt, uh, you know what, he'll improve us. In the, it felt, he really fit a need or filled a need for us, particularly on right wing and uh, in, in the size and the ability to kill penalties. Ted, in your story today about Sunquist, you mentioned his double hip surgery and ACL injury. Before the injuries, I talked to former Red Wing Tim Taylor, the Blues Director of Player Development, and a guest on our podcast. He said they don't win the Stanley Cup in 2019. Without that fourth line of Sunquist, Steen, and Barbashoff, they started Game 7 in Boston. When Sunquist was suspended for a boarding penalty against Matt Grylick, they didn't win without him matching the Bruins hit for hit. And as for Wallman, you mentioned that deep St. Louis defense over the years, Peter Angelo, Pareko, Bomeister, Edmondson, Bortuzzo. They're smaller now with Krug, Falk, and Letty. But as Bob Duff asked Iserman yesterday, was it a coincidence the Wings, one of the smallest teams in the league, that they tried to get bigger and stronger? And Iserman said it was a factor. So, Ted, what do you think of these two prospects, Sunquist and Wallman? And do you think they'll be around in a few years? I doubt it. I don't think, I, from what I gather, I don't think mm-hmm. the Wallman kid is more than a depth defenseman, just talking to several people in St. Louis. Uh, Sunquist, like you said, he's had some good moments, but you do wonder the toll the injuries have had. I don't think St. Louis would have given him away if they felt that he had some health. Uh, if he had, you know, he had recovered totally from those these injuries he's had the last mm-hmm. couple. Of years. They'll they'll fill some roster spots here the next couple of years, but are they? I'd be a little surprised at this point if they're like huge building blocks going forward. Uh, I think the key thing was, I do think getting a second round draft pick for Nick Letty and mm-hmm. the whole situation, that might, that was a good haul for sure. I mean, I don't, I didn't really think he, they'd be able to get a second round draft, any sort of second round draft pick for him. Um, he played well here, Nick Letty did, but I don't think he was at all what they expected or, He's, he's not, frankly, just, he's, he's not the Nick Letty of 10 years ago. I mean, none of us are the, none of us are the same person that we were 10 years ago, but he, he didn't, he didn't ignite the offense. Like I think they felt he could and defensively he had issues. Let's face it. He, he's, he, he was, came in as advertised. He's not the greatest defensive defenseman around. So, but he served, he did offer a vet, good uh, veteran presence there mm-hmm. in the line. He helped some of the young defensemen along. Uh, and they got the second round draft pick. So ultimately, it all worked out. 
Ted, let's hear now from today's special guest, Abby Rock. She's been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She's the first Indigenous player to play for the women's U.S. national team at the Olympics. And she had a team high 10 shots on goal in the gold medal game in Beijing, a 3-2 loss against Canada. Here now is Sault Ste. Marie native Abby Rock. Joining us now is 24-year-old Abby Rock of Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, the first Indigenous player to play with USA Hockey's national women's team, the team that just won a silver medal at the 2022 Winter Games in Beijing. And Abby, welcome to the podcast. And I was talking to your dad and Matt Berger about your introduction to girls hockey in Michigan. Your dad, Jim Rock, is now a pro scout with the Maple Leafs. And Matt Berger was the former Little Caesars hockey director. And the two of them, about 10 years ago, they tell this story. You probably heard it many times, Abby, about being in the lobby in Grand Rapids at the old Patterson Arena. It was a regional development camp, I believe. And Matt was telling your dad about the advantages of you coming to play for Little Caesars because you were playing against the boys primarily in the Sioux up to about age uh, 14. So the way they tell the story, your dad introduced you to Mr. Berger and they repeated the advantages of playing down here in the Detroit area, better competition, tournaments uh, scouted by U.S. colleges. And according to your dad, you listened intently and then said, Dad, do you have $2 for a Powerade? And your dad laughed. <laughs> <and> Matt, <laughs> Matt said that was typical Abbey Rock and playing for the love of the game. So what do you remember about that meeting, Abby? And are there lessons that happened then that help you now? Yeah, I mean, I just remember, I think at those regional development camps is when uh, I think I first started catching some people's eyes. So I think a lot mm -hmm. of those AAA programs and some prep programs were trying to get me to go play girls hockey full time. And I obviously, uh, I never really, I never did, but Matt was great. And was after that, he kind of talked more and I was like, no, I want to play like, I want to play boys high school hockey primarily. I want to keep playing with the boys and live at home in the Sioux. Sure. And he was great about, he was like, well, if you want to be on the team, you can be in the fall tournaments with the team and we can try to figure out a like if you can play when you're not playing with the boys. And uh, he was great with that. So that was why I think starting then I kind of got my first taste of playing uh, on the girls side, which I really needed at that point to start learning about that part of my game. So he was awesome with uh getting my toes uh, wet mm -hmm. with that, and it was awesome. Abby, what was that year like with Little Caesar? Certainly your dad said your mom would pick you up after school. That's a five-hour drive, and she would bring you down here to Detroit. You would do your homework. Sometimes your dad said that, you know, you guys wouldn't get home till like, past two in the morning. What were those drives like, and what was it like, your first experience playing against girls in really a, a really powerful hockey system here in Detroit? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Michigan is known for having very good youth girls programs in itself, and Little Caesars was one of the best, and mm -hmm. that experience was great, I think, for me, just getting to play with Little Caesars and even getting to play the rival Honey Baked and just going to these tournaments and getting to play a lot of really good programs. I think it was definitely something that I needed to get noticed by colleges in those tournaments in the fall so that sure. Division One uh, women's coaches could come and watch and see if they liked my game and I think that was huge for me and uh kind of just beginning to get noticed and then yeah obviously the travel wasn't ideal the five-hour <laughs> drive was uh it's something I mean obviously we would only really go down we'd maybe drive down for like a Thursday practice and then okay. stay for the whole weekend if I had uh 
if I had um, games around the area or we'd drive to Detroit, hit like two practices, and then maybe have to drive to Toronto for a tournament right after that, and then all the way back home to Sioux. So, yeah, there was lots of driving. I mainly slept. I feel bad for my poor parents having to <laughs> drive me around everywhere while I probably just slept in the back or did my homework or watched TV. So, um, but, yeah, they, they sacrificed a lot to make that happen. Abby, what role then did Matt Berger have in your development? And why did you leave Little Caesars to join him with a really a new hockey program in the in the Bloomfield area? Yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty much committed to him and those Little Caesars coaches I had. So I, okay. when he went to a different program, I just kind of, I followed him because he had been great with me and what I needed. And he understood that I wanted to play boys hockey for to, just to be able to live at home and for my development. And he was completely understanding of that, but also wanting me to get some girls games and understanding that it was great for me. And it was great for the team. I think just for me to hop in in a lot of those fall tournaments and games. So when he went to a, a different program, I was obviously, I think I was just committed to him and the person he was and how awesome he was to me. So I obviously went with him. What about the differences from playing shinny hockey, as Matt said, learning to, uh, play the game, enjoy the game. Also, he said he feels that's where you develop some of your hockey IQ. Can you tell me a little bit about those first uh, 14 years quickly playing high school hockey with the boys, having your own dressing room, apparently? Um, that was the way you learned the game, right, Abby? Yeah, so my dad, I mean, all, every year growing up, he made a backyard ice rink. As I started to get older, he started to make it a little bigger because uh, I wanted to use it a lot more and I think a lot of my friends did as we just became older and we played sure. shinny for hours on hours and I think that is where a lot of my skill and a lot of the seeing of the game comes from because I was just out there having fun not afraid to make mistakes just seeing different plays being creative and you know when you're doing that with your friends every day you're practicing without really thinking you're practicing of course uh, but it was it was I think to this day I can attribute having that backyard rink and playing all the time whenever I wanted to a lot of the skills I carry over now. Abby, you went on to Wisconsin. You played four years there. You won a national championship under Mark Johnson, the name that a lot of hockey fans will remember, a former NHLer and a member of the 1980 Miracle on Ice U.S. team in Lake Placid. You played 155 games, 170 points. What did you learn from Mark Johnson and what were some of the other highlights with uh, the Badgers? Mark is an incredible coach um, in person. He's just, he's very down to earth is what I can say. He is mm -hmm. very hardworking, can never sit still, just wants to <laughs> be doing something. So I think uh, with us, it's great to see because he really puts his best foot forward into just making sure we have what we need and everything. But he's a very, uh, I will say he's a very chill coach. He likes to let us play. He doesn't mm -hmm. want to he doesn't like to yell or anything like that. He just likes to try to put us in the best situations we can to be successful and tries to let us play free, not nervous, anything like that. So it's a really great part of his uh, coaching philosophy, I think. And, yeah, I, I think obviously playing under him, I learned a lot just in the sense that he would often, if I thought I was playing a bad game, I'd mm -hmm. maybe get mad or be like, all right, like at this point, like somebody should be playing over me. And he never really <laughs> faltered. He was a very confident guy in, uh, in me. And that's uh, something that definitely carries with me now. And I mean, Wisconsin was great overall. I mean, winning the national championship was obviously, uh, I think, our, my favorite memory and getting to celebrate that afterwards and bring mm -hmm. it back to Madison and everything. It was a truly incredible experience. Abby was also at Wisconsin where you said teammates for the first time. They said they had never really known a Native American before. So 
What was that like as you began to be more aware and study your own background and answering questions from friends and teammates? I think a lot of the girls didn't even realize it for a bit. We were talking, I was talking about, I think, my indigenous background, and a lot of the girls were like, wait, they're like, <laughs> oh, okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm indigenous. And then we were talking because there's not a whole lot of indigenous players uh, at that level. Um, Aaron women's college hockey, so they were just – we were talking about that and there were some girls were like, I think it might be the first like indigenous person I've ever played with or the first indigenous person I even know. So I think that was a, an mm -hmm. eye opening experience for sure. And I still get lots of questions uh, they love to ask. And I think that's awesome. The interest. Good. You know, I also want to talk to you on that subject about another um, hockey player who lived up in the Sioux, Taffy Abel. Uh, that's the rink, of course, where your dad coached at Lake Superior State, Taffy Abel. He was a two-time cup champion with the Blackhawks. He was also the flag bearer at the first winter game. So you were competing in the 2022 games. He was way back in Paris in 1924. And, Abby, here at the Detroit News, we published a story about Abel not telling anyone about his heritage because he was afraid for his safety. As you know, many Indigenous children in the U.S. and Canada were taken off the reserves and sent to boarding schools, some, of course, with disastrous consequences. When I say Taffy Abel, what comes to your mind? I mean, obviously, an incredible player for sure. And I think mm -hmm. the first to do it like he truly did as an Indigenous player at that level, I think he's, uh, I think he's an inspiration for a lot of people. I also think about what you just said. And obviously, I think back then it was pretty scary to come out and say you're an indigenous person mm -hmm. um, in fear for what could happen if you would have to be taken away or go to a school or on or just anything really so I think that is the saddest part because I stand here and I can say that I'm in I'm an indigenous player and I don't have to fear for truly anything anymore and I think that's uh what makes it so special is during the time he was doing it and he was holding his own and obviously was so successful sure. as a person and a player your dad said that he can understand how Taffy Abel felt about withholding his heritage and his culture because your dad remembers his mom, so your grandmother, telling him and his brother and sister to never tell anyone that they were Native. He said, he said she was always nervous, but he never really thought anything of it. And like you said, you're learning now, and it's sad that your forebearers and, and other members of your family had to uh, experience this. But it also puts a bit of a burden on you as well, although you are uh, educating a lot of us about the needs and the ability to make the game more accessible. Is it a role that you're comfortable with? Um, you're on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You're talking about being the first Indigenous player to play for the U.S. women's hockey team. How do you feel about that, the pros and cons? I think obviously, yeah, to start with my dad is something that I think makes it so that I realize that I do need to talk about it and try to be a visible mm -hmm. uh, role model as an Indigenous player. So I think, I think especially for young kids playing sports or wanting to get into sports, if you can see it, I think it's a lot easier to want to be it. And I think hopefully seeing me at this level and be, being as good of a role model as I can be, hopefully will have some impact on players and Good. little kids who want to play hockey and they can say oh hockey hockey could be for me then and they play and they feel included and hopefully that does make an impact and I think that it's important for me to talk about it and be visible and be willing to answer questions as much as I can just because uh as you said my dad as a kid it wasn't that long ago I guess that you couldn't 
mm-hmm. be yourself and let people know your heritage and talk about it as openly. So I think it's just, uh, it's something that I should be grateful to be able to do. Abby, there's just one more question too about uh, your background and the connection is to former uh, Red Wing Ted Nolan, who played here in Detroit, a Native American, and he wants to start a worldwide Indigenous Games and he'll be coaching a team in an upcoming event that I believe you'll be a part of. Can you tell me a little bit about Ted Nolan and his plans to really elevate the, uh, the sport and to uh, publicize uh, what it's like and all the talent that is really not just the United States and Canada, but around the world? My dad, I think, uh, talks to Ted a lot. Um, they're good friends, and I think that's awesome because he was a very big role model for me and for a lot of other Indigenous players. Uh, watching his career and what he's done in, for hockey and for Indigenous people overall has been it's been really amazing to watch. And I think, yeah, he obviously, uh, mm-hmm. he's going to be coaching in a tournament that I think I'll be playing in, uh, on a different team. Um, but yeah, so it's going to be an all like indigenous, uh, hockey tournament. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think it'll be a super fun time, super interesting just to be around, um, all these incredible indigenous hockey players. And yeah, he wants to, uh, grow the game. And I think do a lot more like things with just indigenous hockey players forming teams and, He's really been incredible for, I think, Indigenous hockey players just across North America. And finally, uh, Abby, just some questions about the Olympics. And uh, first of all, that comment from Hillary Knight saying that uh, you're going to be the best women's hockey player, plain and simple. And your dad said Hillary may have jumped the gun. And of course, uh, but I just, I just wonder what your thoughts are. Your dad said that Hillary... One thing that he said that separates, you know, a veteran, a, a multi-Olympian world champion is that he said when she shoots, uh, she shoots to score. Whereas he said, you're learning how to do that. And I'm sure it's something he's talked to you about. You had 10 shots in that final game against Canada, the 3-2 loss. First of all, could you talk about what Hillary Knight said, uh, how you feel it's flattering, but there's also maybe some pressure with that? And also the game itself, your 10 shots on goal against the Canadians. Obviously, I do, I do think Hillary <laughs> says. I think she needed to relax with that one. I think uh, yeah. any praise from somebody of that caliber is amazing. And her having confidence in me and my ability to play and where it can go from here is good. something that you take with you and that it hopefully gives you the confidence to just continue to try to succeed and improve. And she is a great player. Like, uh, my my dad sees it too. She shoots to score. She is a very elite goal scorer. Not many can score quite like she can or have the shot that she does. And obviously, yeah. And I think I had a lot of I had a lot of shots over the whole uh, Olympics. I think, and not a lot wanted to go in for me. And sometimes that's puck luck. But you know, I think I am still uh, learning to shoot to score. I think I'm been primarily a passer most of my life, and I still, I guess, consider myself that playmaker so sometimes I am a little hesitant to shoot or I wait a little too long just because I'm trying to look for that extra play and then I got to yeah that championship game and we uh we played I think we played a really great second third period I wouldn't even say our first period was that was Mm -hmm. truly that bad we just got down fast and you know Hillary gets that goal just being a shooter herself she went shoots gets her own rebound and she uh she really is elite like that. And for myself, I did have definitely a lot of chances. I got a post. I, at the, I honestly probably had five of those shots in the last minute and a half when we got our goalie pulled. I was just trying to lay them in there. And finally, one of the rebounds went in on one of my shots. But uh, yeah, I think I'm still learning that aspect of the game. And 
Abby, there was one other Michigan player on the uh, on your team, Megan Keller, a guest in year one of our podcast. She grew up in Farmington Hills. Her favorite player was Nick Lidstrom. They both wear number five. Megan played 29-17, more ice time than any other player. But maybe you could talk a little bit about Megan Keller, the role that she plays as a veteran, one of the best defensemen in the world, and what that relationship has been like with you. Uh, there's two Michiganders now uh, on, on the hockey club. It's obviously great to have another girl from Michigan. I knew uh, Megan since high school, actually. I played U18 uh, World Cup okay. for one year, and she was um, actually on Honey Baked when I was playing for Little Caesars uh, in some of those games. So I'd get to play against her sometimes in the fall there. And then we went to college and I would get to go to camps and uh, different U.S. tryout stuff. And I really started to see her just uh, come into her own. I think when I saw her at U18 Worlds, I was like, this girl's incredible. And I thought she was so underrated at the time. I was like, she's sure. going to be an amazing defenseman. And sure enough, uh, she goes to Boston College <laughs> and she really, she just kind of flourished, I think, there. And became this incredible player who, which I, I knew she could be. And I, I watch her on her team and she truly is just a, she's an elite defenseman. She's big, can skate, great shot, sees the ice well. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she really is a complete package as a defenseman. And like you said, she played a lot of minutes in that uh, gold medal game. And I think that, uh, that just speaks to, you want her on the ice. You can rely on her. She's a trustworthy player, but she's also just, she's a great teammate, uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're pretty good friends. I hung out with her a lot during the Olympics and it's, it's great to have somebody like her around and just make she always wants uh, everybody to be happy. And she's a, she's a big jokester always keeps a light for our team. <laughs> and Abby, how about uh, sort of bursting upon this scene, the injury to Brianna Decker uh, 10 minutes into the first game against Finland. Your dad said that was such a huge loss because she was one of the uh, uh, most experienced centers, power play penalty killing. And that moved you up with Amanda Kessel and Alex uh, Carpenter and the team had a lot of success. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about getting that chance, which really was unexpected. Obviously losing Brianna Decker is, was tough for our team. And I think nobody can replace Brianna Decker. She was a huge loss for that whole tournament. Sure. Um, she's a player that we want to have on the ice, obviously. And she played a different role for us um, coming into more of a coaching role and, being just this great leader and teammate to us well she could she stayed around even with the injury and just kind of put herself into that role which she did amazing of but yeah it obviously uh it put me between Alex Carpenter and Amanda Kessel and I had played with them uh before we were line mates going into the last worlds and we got split up then okay. and hadn't really been put back together and we were we really liked playing together before then, and I know we we talked about it before how much fun it had been. And when I went back up there, I was like, "All right, well, at least I've I've been here before. I know how to play with these two, and we we played very well together before. So I guess it wasn't a wasn't a big wasn't a big surprise, and also wasn't something that I was very uncomfortable with. So it was obviously a great experience to be able to play between those two, and they are just amazing hockey players. Abby, what happens between now and the next Olympics in Italy in 2026? There are a number of games, a rivalry games. Uh, tell us a little bit about what your schedule is like, your mindset, even just you're unwinding, you're back from Beijing, and we appreciate your time on the podcast. But I'm just wondering what, uh, what your schedule is short term, and are you even thinking of Italy down the road? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think a lot of the girls are – thinking about Italy but there is a lot that goes on between then obviously right now we're all excited to have a minute to relax I don't think 
we've had much relaxing time because of the postponement of some worlds and things like when you'd normally get the off season right after we've been kind of just getting things pushed back and things like that. So you can never really stop training because you think something's coming up right around the corner. So it's nice knowing right now that we can take a little time to relax and actually get a break. Uh, our body could definitely use it uh, after all that time and hard work and skating and injuries and things like that. But obviously there's a, there's a world's in August. So I think okay. a lot of girls have their sights set on that and there's worlds every year and there's rivalry series games and different little tournaments and things like that. So I think uh, most girls are uh, just excited to get to the next worlds. But I think, yeah, obviously I think a lot of the people do have their sights set on Italy, which is four years down the road, but you just, uh, all these worlds tournaments, I guess, kind of lead you up to that. And Abby, you know, your dad keeps a couple of things in his backpack when he goes to games, you've probably heard about it or know that there's a note in there when you were younger saying that you wanted to play in the Olympics, maybe go to a big university like Wisconsin and drive a Mustang. He goes, he doesn't know if you've driven a Mustang, but you have a Jeep. And there's also a photo of you uh, also with your older sister, Emma and Gordy Howe. And that's another prize possession because he said, Mr. Hockey, Gordy Howe treated yourself and your older sister so well. So the notes in your dad's backpack, have you driven a Mustang? That was, that was when you were younger, obviously, wondering if you would. And just that Gordy Howe meeting, what that meant, obviously, to your dad a great deal. And even, and even for your sister as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I obviously know I, have, I haven't driven the Mustang yet. I, I've got to get around to that <laughs> to complete the the list I made but I mean obviously my dad is super proud of me and my sister and just uh I think how far we've come and I I remember that day meeting Gordy Howe I thought it was the coolest thing on earth and he was so awesome with me just messing with me honestly and just like he treated (laughs) he was just a great time like super fun like loving life loving being able to be there and uh yeah I mean those are two things that I think my dad does hold uh close to his heart and so do I honestly um kind of predicting my own future there with, uh, with the list and it's funny because I think at the time I just kind of put it down and it all just kind of I, yeah. I guess I just predicted it in a weird way and then that day with Gordie Howe too it was a uh, truly inspiring to be around somebody who's known for how amazing he was at hockey and just realizing how great of a person he was and how down to earth he was. So it was great to see somebody like that. Abby, thanks again for talking to us today about your Michigan roots, uh, coming to Detroit to play girls hockey for the first time, uh, your Native American background, and how you made history as the first Indigenous player to play for the women's national team at the Olympics. All the best from all of us here at the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Our thanks again to Abby Rock. And Ted, back to the news conference yesterday. And one of the stories which made headlines was Steve Eiserman's comments or lack of comments about the coaching staff. Here's what that sounded like. Well, I think, um, you know, we're here to talk about the trade deadline, Helene, and the moves that we made. So uh, this has been an up and down year for us. We've had a lot of progress. The last six weeks of the season have been disappointing for all of us and give or take six, the last six weeks. So, uh, you know, we'll, Jeff and I will sit out at some point and, and talk about our team and where we're going with our team and what we need to do. But, I don't think this is the time to you know really discuss our coaching staff or our coach for that matter. Ted, the Wings still have 20 games left starting tonight against the Flyers, Thursday in Long Island against the Islanders, and then back here Saturday afternoon against the Lightning, and then the next night in Pittsburgh at 5 o'clock. They're five games under 500, 
And only the Montreal Canadiens have allowed more goals than the Wings. And Montreal is 19 games under 500. The Wings have been as good as four games over 500. That was right after Sider's OT goal at Little Caesars to beat the Islanders. And now their goals against average is actually worse than a few years ago when they bottomed out with one of the worst records in franchise history. And this morning on 97 won the ticket, Eisman said it was painfully surprising, allowing seven, eight, nine, ten 10 goals a game. Eisman said maybe the veterans are fading, the rookies are hitting the wall. He said we need to check better. Maybe he said we need a bigger defensive core. What do you think happens, Ted, as far as Jeff Blaschel trying to win these games? He certainly has an opportunity if the team bounces back as they have historically when they've allowed four goals or more, they almost always come back and win the next game. What, what does the next 20 games look like for Jeff Blaschel and his coaching staff with Doug Huda and Alex Tangay? Tell you, my friend, I think, I think it would behoove the coaching staff to win as many of these 20 <laughs> as possible. Uh, no, I, I, th- I thought it was, I mean, I thought Eiserman did drop a couple of hints there. I don't think he's been too pleased about the defense here, particularly lately. Uh, it's everybody knew it was going to be difficult. I mean, the schedule was quite mm-hmm. here the second half of the season, but just the way that they've played, I think that's been somewhat alarming. Um, we'll see what happens the rest of the way. It's they've lost a couple of key veteran pieces here in Letty and the Mexicanoff, so they're going to be playing younger lineups. That's not mm-hmm. going to make it easy. You're still playing a lot of quality teams here, these 20 games, too. Teams that are really going to try to win these games for positioning in the playoffs and whatnot. It's not going to be easy. And I don't know. If I, I think we've talked about this at some points here recently. It's, it's starting to look a little daunting for Mr. Blaschel. I really do. It's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But the signs aren't too good right now unless you know they can turn it around here these 20 games and go into the off season with a bit more momentum and finally ted the last time steve eisenman fired a coach was in march of 2013 different circumstances different times nine years ago but the lightning under head coach guy boucher he still had one year left on a four-year contract and the team was five games under 500 Tampa Bay had just allowed four goals in the first period in Ottawa, and they lost five to three. Boucher was fired when he got back to the hotel. And later, Steve Eiserman's uh, statement was, Guy has poured his heart and soul into the Lightning organization for the past three years, and we appreciate all the effort, all the work he's done. But ultimately, Eiserman said, I'm not satisfied with the direction we are heading and I believe making a change today is in the best interest of our franchise. What similarities, if any, are there between Eiserman's last firing nine years ago, Ted, if there are any? And are the Wings one bad period away? You would think that Arizona game might have, you saw Steve Eiserman's reaction up in the press box, up in the suite. Are the Wings really just one bad period? Or like you said, it's a very daunting task. But certainly, this is one circumstance in his past. And Steve Eisenman said in the press conference, don't make me out to, don't start reading into things too much. But certainly, the team is, Rick, on the brink, aren't they? That they, they really do need to compete in these final 20 games. Right. I think, I mean, they're not going to 
fire Jeff Blashill tomorrow or the next week. They're gonna they're gonna close out the season and make a determination at that point. But there just has to be something more positive coming out of this, Mark. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. I mean, these last six weeks, it's been a tough stretch, no question. And some of those, like we've talked about, some of those defensive performances have been alarming. Uh, they need to button down defensively. Some of these young kids, well, they're not even young kids anymore. You'd like to see a little bit more improvement from the likes of Zadina and Ronick and, you know, get uh, suitors really dropped off here in the last little while. Some, some of these guys need to turn it around. Is it his fault that the goaltending has also been so inconsistent? Probably not, but it's just been a tough stretch. Hopefully they, for, you know, for Jeff Blaschel's sake, they can iron it out here these last, well, that's about what six, seven weeks, and like I said, going in with a little bit more of a positive mood. Maybe he has a, he has a good chance of returning. Otherwise, like we said, it looks starting to look a little daunting right now. And that'll do it for episode sixty-eight of our Detroit News Detroit Red Wings podcast. Thanks again, as always, Ted, for your time. Ted's stories are available online at DetroitNews.com, and you can also find them on our Octopulse Facebook page, on Twitter, Instagram, Instagram Stories, and Snapchat. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, rating, and reviewing this podcast. We also have a special subscription offer today. One day only, $22 for a two-year subscription. $22 for a two-year subscription. So please give that your consideration if you haven't done so already. Ted and I will be back in a couple of weeks, and our special guest will be USA Hockey's Logan Cooley, the second-ranked prospect for the 2022 NHL Draft. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Bye for now. (laughs) 